We are still studying this exchange that Jesus has with what has been called the rich young ruler. There were too many good things in here to uncover. I did not want to just gloss over them, and so we're taking a little more of an in-depth study here. I'm going to read the entire account from 18 through 30. And then we will get into our text. Long introduction today, so don't start to get nervous. I don't think we're going to even look at any slides for like the first 20 or 25 minutes, so don't, don't panic. We're getting there. Luke 18:18. 18, 18. And a ruler asked him, Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack... Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. In 1975, in a suburb outside the city of Chicago, a new Christian movement was born. Its primary focus was on reaching a certain demographic called the unchurched. It was begun by Bill Hybels, a recent seminary graduate, who had a desire to build a church for people who did not like to go to church. So Hybels surveyed the community to find out what turned people away from the Sunday gathering. Common answers included, church is boring, or they're always asking for money, or the sermons are too long, or I don't like being preached at. These answers and many more helped Hybels to develop a community where none of the earmarks of the traditional church remained. Nothing to stumble potential guests who had religious hang-ups. To accomplish this, changes needed to be made. He started with the name. 
He avoided words that you would expect to see at a church like Baptist or Bible. He wanted something that didn't sound like a church at all, and he decided to call it Willow Creek. Because he considered the traditional church service to be outdated, he got rid of hymns and brought in a team of musicians to produce more modern and lively worship. He also removed any vestige of the Christian faith so it didn't feel like you were in a church at all. No pulpit, no pews, no religious art, not even a cross. And since the sermon was central to all Protestant worship services, he knew the preaching needed to change also. His self-imposed standards for the message were simple. They must be short. They must be absent of trigger words like sin and judgment. And the messages must contain a dual emphasis on man's needs and God's love. Sermons must avoid any focus on doctrine any reference to God's law, any mention of repentance as necessary for salvation, and a strong emphasis on the Christian faith as the way to a happy and fulfilling life. The Sunday service could no longer be for the Christian, but for reaching the unbeliever. For those who were believers, they were told that they need to become self-feeders meaning they were to focus on personal Bible study and small group participation to be spiritually fed. Hybels had a vision, and that vision was to make Willow Creek an environment where unbelievers would actually want to come. And it worked. The people came in droves, and Willow Creek grew and grew and grew, and at one point, 25,000 were in attendance on a Sunday. With such demonstrable growth, Hybels gained a reputation as the father of this new church movement, and he would have conferences every year where thousands of pastors would come from all over the world to be trained in the same model, how to grow a church. Instead of the New Testament pattern of the church being made up of believers who are being equipped for the work of the ministry, Hybels made the church a place focusing on the unbeliever, all with the hopes that they would become Christians. Now, I have no reason to think that Hybels had bad motives or did not want to see people come to Christ. I mean, I have every reason to believe he truly wanted to honor the Lord, truly wanted to see people saved. But what he started back in the early 70s created much confusion regarding the purpose and function of the church. The biblical picture of the church is a community of the redeemed and nothing else. And whenever someone tries to change such a foundational aspect of God's design, problems will always follow. In fact, this new movement that spread rapidly began to change how Christians think about unbelieving people in general. How bad man's spiritual condition really is. Hybels promoted the idea that sinners who are dead in sin can be persuaded to love the truth 
without being confronted with the reality of their condition. Right? So if we're avoiding words like sin and repentance and judgment, don't, don't want to talk about that. The idea was we can persuade people to love the truth and come to Jesus and not put those obstacles in the way. And so the power of the Gospel was emptied of of its power because the offense of the Gospel was removed. You take away man's sin from the problem of man and the cross makes absolutely no sense. And it results in a community largely made up of false converts. The church never needs to change to be appealing to the world. It never needs to change to accommodate the culture. The Gospel is to be preached and the Word of God upheld and God's means of converting the soul is through the preaching of the cross. The harsh reality of sin as man's condition and Christ as man's cure. That is the message. So to develop a church that would appeal to people who are spiritually dead is an exercise in futility because man by nature is not looking for God. He might be looking for relief from his problems. He might be looking to feel better about himself. He might even be looking for answers pertaining to eternity. But the Bible is clear that there is one thing he is not looking for, and that is the true and living God. By nature, that's man's condition. Hybels wrongly assume that there are seekers out there who would want to come to Christ if they were just made more comfortable and they could feel at home in Christ's church. So the whole model was based on a faulty understanding of the nature of man because the Bible is clear in Romans chapter 3, there are none that seek after God, not even one, Paul says. In fact, the only seeker you will find in the Bible is God. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, Jesus meets a man in Luke 18 who would appear outwardly to be a seeker. He would have been the kind of man that they were trying to reach at Willow Creek. He believes in God. He wants to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. And that question alone would have had the proponents of the church growth movement salivating. They would want immediately to lead him in a sinner's prayer. But how Jesus proclaimed the kingdom can never be reduced to some model or formula. Jesus does not cater to man because he understands the heart of man. You can no more persuade a sinner to surrender their lives to Christ than you can persuade a dead person to come up out of the grave. There must be a resurrection that takes place and that comes through the preaching of the biblical gospel. Not modern methods of persuasion or by hiring charismatic teachers. It all must start with an awareness of our true condition and God's remedy through Christ. 
And because of that, Jesus has to show this rich young ruler the truth about himself. He has to show him how spiritually bankrupt he really is. If you've ever read this account and think, well, why doesn't Jesus just close the deal with him? It's because the man does not see himself in truth, and that is step number one. Now contrast how Jesus handles this man, and I trust it's fresh in your mind because this is the third week we've been in this passage. But contrast how Jesus avoids or, or how Jesus handles him versus the modern method which avoids the hard to hear truths while trying to persuade people to Christ for other reasons. Jesus was never looking for an impulsive decision. He was not looking for someone to express faith in Him while maintaining their broken life. He was not looking for half-hearted disciples whose only interest in the church centered on them and their comfort. Jesus preached on sin and repentance and the need to deny yourself. He was not afraid to tell people about the realities of hell. He was not concerned that his hard words would turn people away. Jesus avoided superficial commitments. Rather than Jesus leading this man to some profession of faith or through some formulaic prayer, he calls him to surrender everything. Rather than just, just saying, Rather than Jesus just saying to this man that all he needs to do is believe in him, he tells him he cannot enter the kingdom unless he relinquishes all of his possessions. Now, we discussed already the gospel is not faith in Jesus plus sell everything. It's not faith in Jesus plus anything. But there is a necessary condition that accompanies genuine faith where a sinner's allegiance shifts from his being the center of everything to Christ being the center of everything. The old life must be left behind and a new transformed life put in its place. And there are no circumstances where a person can hold on to their former life while at the same time gaining Christ. The two are not compatible. I talked to a friend two days ago. This is someone, he was my roommate 30 or more years ago. Did lots of drugs and drinking together and parties and all the rest. And I reconnected with him a few years ago. I noticed on Facebook he, he worked at a church. I thought, wow, that's interesting. Did Dave become a Christian? And he's a, he's a chef, so he... This was a big church, and he worked as catering to all of their events. And yet, as I've connected with him over the last couple months and years, I've just realized, you know, I mean, his life is a mess. Like, his life is just like it was when, I, when mine was a mess. <laughs> and so I called him the other day, and I asked how things were going, and he told me just how hard life was, and... Starting before the holidays, he started drinking 
a ton every night, blackout drunk for months. So bad that he had a problem with his esophagus that he had to go to the ER and it was alcohol related to burning up his throat. And so in the midst of our dialogue, he's, he's moaning about how he's been praying for God to help him in this area and that area. And what I had to tell him was, Dave, you can't take your broken, tragic, messed up life and drag it and join it to Christ and think that everything is going to go the right way. Like there has to be a break from your former life, which is called repentance, for you to gain Christ in the first place. So we can't just have a superficial commitment to Christ saying, yes, I believe in the resurrection, I believe in the triune God, and never break away from our former habits, our former lifestyle. And this is the issue with this rich young ruler. You cannot come to Christ and serve anything else. He must be your primary allegiance and everything that you possess or that you do or that you seek is all to be in light of that primary relationship. Now, it makes perfect sense to all of us that if a prostitute comes to Christ, she has to leave her life of prostitution. Everyone agrees with that. So it should make perfect sense that an idolater must leave his idols before he can come to Christ. And sometimes those idols are in the form of our stuff. And so with this man... He is coming to Jesus with an idolatry problem and he asks this most important question about eternal life and Jesus does not pronounce him a child of the kingdom of God, nor does he persuade him to pray a prayer with him, but he moves past the surface level and shows the man what his greatest treasure is and it's not God. And so, Jesus says, if you're going to come, you have to leave it. And we saw that the man realized the cost was too high for him, and he went away very sad. If eternal life meant to surrender that which gave him security and well-being and comfort and recognition, then the cost was too high. He goes away extremely sad, And rather than that being an anomaly, Jesus shows us that this is the human condition. Rather than responding in astonishment like Jesus can't believe it, Jesus points to the impossibility of the situation and He portrays this man's condition with an analogy, which we saw last time. Jesus, seeing that He had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So how difficult is it? It's impossible. And this picture is given to communicate impossibility. It's so impossible, it's like taking a 900-pound animal and trying to drag it through the eye of a needle. In fact, he says that is easier 
That's what he says. It's easier. <laughs> now, I don't want to gross you out, but I was thinking if you cut up a camel piece by piece and put it in one of those super blenders that just liquefies everything and still tried to pour it through the eye of a needle, you would have a hard time doing that. And Jesus isn't talking about that. He's talking about it passing through, you know, in one piece. (laughs) So the people get it. And their response is very appropriate. They said, then who can be saved? Now, I pointed out last week, they didn't say, then what rich person can be saved? They said, then who in the world can be saved? If he is not getting in, he's wealthy, which in their eyes meant God was happy with him. He's very religious. He keeps God's commandments. He's a seeker. He's asking about eternal life. And Jesus turns him away, and they're thinking, no one's getting in. And Jesus does not try to correct their thinking. He's like, well, hold on a second. you've, You've taken this way too far. That's not what I mean at all. He doesn't say that. He responds with this. What is impossible with man is possible with God. So, it's not an improbability that the rich will never come to to him. It's not an improbability that a man who's so committed to his wealth will one day surrender that wealth to follow Jesus just on his own. It's not most likely someone won't do that who's going to surrender his, who's going to cease loving money as his greatest life's pursuit. He agrees with their astonishment and he confirms their reaction by saying it is impossible. Now, does that mean that no rich people are ever saved? No, of course not. It just means that it, every time it happens, it requires a miracle. It's impossible with man, meaning in and of himself... It's impossible and only possible with God. So the impossibility Jesus refers to here is in regard to the human condition. It means that man lacks the power in himself to abandon his sin. It means that there is no power within a person to forsake their primary allegiance, which is to themselves. There's no power there. They can't do it. They can't. The Bible describes people as lost, enslaved, spiritually dead, and in and of themselves they will never surrender their lives to follow Christ. Never. This is the doctrine we call total depravity. Total depravity is the biblical teaching that sin has so ruined a person that they are not only unwilling but they are unable to come to Christ apart from divine intervention. Total depravity teaches that man is so broken that no one comes to Christ on his own, no one seeks after God, and that 
salvation is a miracle that is accomplished by the power and work of God. And lest you think it's just the rich that have this condition, think again. It is passed on to all of Adam's offspring. Which we will see shortly. Now, in this discourse, the rich become representative of the human condition. So Jesus responding here is saying it's impossible with man. He's not just saying it's impossible with rich man. It's impossible with man. That's all of us. Money is an obstacle that prevents a person from coming to faith. True. But that does not mean the rest of humanity are without such obstacles. It doesn't mean that the rest can come to Christ on their own. It doesn't mean it's easy for the rest to come to Christ on their own. You and I were born as children of Adam with an internal resistance to the things of God. We have an internal compulsion to serve ourselves rather than Him. If you go back to Genesis, when, when Adam sins, death occurs, and the result of that death is that Adam flees from the presence of the Lord. Adam does not go finding God to try to reconcile. Adam is off in the bushes hiding. And that is a picture of all of Adam's offspring. We flee from the presence of the Lord by nature. This means that people become saved because God is at work within them to become saved. This means that salvation is of the Lord and not of man. We sang it earlier. He is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. In other words, we are powerless. This also means that when we pray for a lost neighbor or family member or friend, we are asking God to perform a miracle in them. I mean, isn't that how you pray for your neighbors and friends? God, Lord, please do something in them. Please change their heart. Please remove that barrier that keeps them from you. Please soften them. Please do something in them. Salvation is of the Lord, which also means that any evangelistic effort that involves catering to a person's heartfelt desires or persuading him through carnal methodologies will do nothing to bring him or her to genuine salvation. It must be a work of God, and that work of God always takes place through the preaching of the gospel. Whether they hear it, whether they read it, whether they remember it, God uses the gospel to transform the sinner from death to life. Now, does this mean that people who are in these kinds of churches, seeker-sensitive, Bill Hybels church, does this mean these people are never saved? No, I'm not saying that either. But I do believe that God saves people despite those means rather than because of them. In other words, God in His mercy, even when we 
build a church and it's all messed up and things aren't the way they're supposed to be, God will still save because He's a saving kind of God. But I don't think that means we run out and construct a church model that is totally unbiblical with a radically different view of the nature of man. Now, I know these are weighty ideas. These are big, heavy ideas. I want to try and be clear, so I'm going to just sort of summarize partway, halfway through here. The Bible, on the one hand, holds man perfectly accountable to God for his actions and his attitude toward God. No innocent people out there who did not know of God. He's made himself known through creation. He's given them an internal moral system called a conscience. So everyone is accountable to God. But at the same time, man is dead in his sins and he does not want God. So, the Bible clearly teaches that God is the one who saves. God is the seeker. And anyone who comes to faith in Christ is a result of God pursuing them and giving them eternal life. This is why anyone is ever saved at all. Man has such a great resistance against the things of God that when he does come to faith in Christ, it's because God has broken down that resistance by his sovereign power. So man is lost and spiritually dead and does not want God. God saves dead people by making them alive and joining them to Christ. These are two biblical truths that are held in tension. Or as Jesus said, with man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. So I thought we could look at a few texts that teach this. 1 Corinthians 1.18, this is the text I had Richard read. Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. So you have two groups here. Those who are perishing, those who are being saved. The perishing see the gospel as nonsense. The saved see it as the power of God. What is the difference between these two people, these two groups? What is the difference? Why do some see it as power and some see it as weakness, foolishness? few verses later, 1 Corinthians 1.22 and following, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. By the way, this is everybody. Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles. This is talking about all of humanity. These are the two groups, Jew and non-Jew. That's what he's saying. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. They each have their obstacle. They each have that thing that makes them not want Christ. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
So you see what Paul just did here? Now all of a sudden there's a third group made up of people from both of the other groups and these see Christ as the power of God. So you got the two. The natural man sees the cross and thinks, blah, nonsense, who cares? But those who are called, meaning God has called them, they see the cross as the power and wisdom of God. So there are Jews and there are Greeks and they do not want Christ. And then out of that group of Jews and Greeks, God calls people into this third group where they look at the same thing and say, this is everything. Christ is everything. It goes from an impossible human situation where the stumbling blocks are described in both groups to a miracle of salvation where some from each group do want Christ. How did that happen? Notice also, just as a side note, it's through preaching Christ. Verse 23, he says, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the vehicle God uses to save. Not through charismatic persuasion, not through more comfortable churches, not by taking crosses down. pastor friend of mine in San Diego, we have a similar background as far as parties and all the rest and smoking dope and drinking too much. And, and he got saved and he was sharing the gospel with his co-worker who he used to party with. And my friend Gene was telling this guy about Christ. And he said, why would I give up beer and women and weed? For that. Why would I give up my favorite things, the things that I think about when I wake up, the things that I'm chomping at the bit to get to when I get off work, those very things that make life happy. Why would I give those things up? It's foolishness. Stupidity. That's the natural man in his natural carnal self who lives for himself and lives for pleasure hearing this message of God coming to save the world, I mean, that's, that's stupid. Again, Paul, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural person is the person without the Spirit. This is every son and daughter of Adam. And because he's without the Spirit, he doesn't discern the things of the Spirit. He sees no value in them. He does not find them to be wonderful. Paul makes another comparison in Romans 8, comparing the life of the believer to the life of the spiritually dead. He says in Romans 8.5, Two types of people. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now listen to this, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is Biblical Anthropology 101. This is man's condition in his natural state. He is not a seeker, and he is not only not a seeker, he is hostile to the idea of God. What does that word picture in your mind? Hostile. I don't want that. The person who is carnally minded and dead in sin, regardless of how many religious activities he gets involved in, is still carnally minded and dead in sin. There is a spiritual transformation that needs to take place, and this is a work of God. Because man is hostile to God by nature, this also means that he is not neutral with the subject. He is not neutral when it comes to the subject of God as if he is a blank slate who is just very willing to try and understand God. He just needs a little bit of coaxing with some better music or more charismatic preaching or a more inviting atmosphere. No, that's not the picture at all. They are hostile to God. They don't like the idea of God so much that if they do ascribe to a God, they will invent one after their own image. So ask your neighbor sometime. Your neighbor believes in God, is not a Christian, doesn't want to go to church with you, whatever. And he's talking about God, but he will say something like, well, my God would never send anyone to hell. And you can agree with that. You're right. Your God never would send anyone to hell because he's a figment of your imagination. You've invented him because you so have a distaste for the true God who has revealed himself in Christ that you will create a God that you're comfortable with and that's who you're talking about when you say God. So this is man's condition, which means there are no true seekers. And to change the church or to change the message to try to persuade people who are hiding from God to come out into the light and join themselves to Christ will never work unless God is causing that change. And God has told us He'll do that through the preaching of the cross. The church's primary job is to do what God has said, which is preach the truth. We don't need to get creative. We don't need to appeal to culture. We don't need to make sinners comfortable. We need to tell them the truth. Now, I have realized there's an ugly way to present the truth that's, that's mean-spirited and, and unattractive. I'm not saying don't... Tr- you know. You don't want to be a stumbling block yourself because you're bringing a hard message. You don't need to be the one who's turning them away, but you are coming in love preaching a hard message. 
That's just the facts. And if we change that, then we're changing the very thing that God has given us to convert the soul. Which is His work. I alluded to this earlier. Paul says in Romans 3.10, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So once you have an accurate view of man, then you can understand that salvation is a miraculous work and that it is God who accomplishes it as a miracle. The power of God. Now, someone might hear all this and say, yeah, but what about all those verses where we're commanded to believe? I mean, Jesus is commanding people to believe and the apostles are commanding people to believe. And I mean, why would they say that if we don't have the ability to do that? And John chapter 1, I think, is helpful here. Verse, verse 11, Jesus came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Ah, there it is. They believed in His name and He gave them the right to become children of God. It's right there, right? But notice what he says in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what John is saying here is that when people become children of God, it's because they are born of God. Who believes in His name? Those who are born of God. Man cannot will himself into a relationship with God, which means that you and I cannot persuade someone into the kingdom of God. Or, how about this? One of the most well-known passages in the Bible. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It's where we get the term born again from. Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. How can a man go into his mother's womb and be born a second time? So Jesus elaborates in John 3.6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Meaning, carnal man produces carnal men, but the Spirit of God produces spiritual men. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. By the way, literally born from above. If you look at the footnote in your Bible, born from above is the actual literal translation. Then he uses an analogy to describe this in verse 8. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, salvation is not formulaic. 
you cannot hold a tent revival and tell everyone, Tuesday, 3 p.m., we're having a revival and God's going to show up. Can't do that. There's no formulas. Salvation is not humans coming together and devising a more skillful way to get people into groups hoping they will become believers. It is the work of the Spirit that makes people believers, and the Spirit's work is so unpredictable, it's like the wind. Some believe over here. Some do not believe over there. I'll give you one more. This is one of the most clear and definitive statements that Jesus ever made on the mechanics of salvation. He's preaching to large groups of people. He's very popular at this point. John chapter 6. 5,000 people are fed in the, very, the, the, the previous scene that we're going to look at. Massive crowds are following him. He crosses the lake and they're going to look for him. They're crossing over to find him. Now, this looks like very interested people. They, these are seekers. Now, what does Jesus do? Does he gather them together and lead them in a huge prayer? Does he ask them to raise their hand if they want to make a decision for him? No. Check this out. He begins teaching them doctrines that are offensive to them. The rest of the chapter is Jesus teaching the hardest, most offensive doctrines he's ever taught. It's the opposite of the seeker model. John 6.37 He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now notice what He's saying. There's crowds of people. He's saying the ones who are going to come to Him are the ones that the Father gives to Him. So He's talking about this impossibility with man, possible with God thing. He's not worried if people are going to walk away because He knows that this is the work of God giving sinners to Him. Now, the Jews take issue with this, of course. They're scoffing at him. They're mocking him about his relationship to God. He says in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me. He's talking about salvation. Unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is a work of God. Now at this point, Jesus doubles down and he starts teaching, if you want to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Oh, what? I mean, these are Jews who obey the law and... There are very strict things about blood. And of course, now we're talking human blood and eating flesh. I mean, my goodness, this is a great way to disperse a crowd, Jesus. 
And the response in verse 60 is when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it or who can listen to it? Oh, offensive. Now, these were all people who made a profession of faith. How do I know this? It calls them disciples. It doesn't say the crowd. It specifically says these are disciples. That means they said yes to Jesus at some point. They're there because they are following Him. They're offended by what He said. Verse 63, Jesus responds to their response and said, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. The Spirit gives life. 64, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted to Him by the Father. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So this is not just the crowds are thinning out. These are people who made a profession of faith and now they're turning around and saying, nope, I'm not going. So you have 5,000 more than that. That's, that's the men in the previous scene. Feeding of the 5,000. You have these massive crowds. You have disciples who claim to follow Christ. And at the end of this chapter... There are 12 left. Jesus and the 12. That's it. And one of them is Judas. Now, if this was a modern situation, they would say, well, don't ever preach that sermon again. (laughs) I mean, this is not the way you get decisions for Christ. So what's the point of all this? Sometimes we get into passages like this and it raises even more questions than when we started. And I don't have time to address them all, but let me just sort of pull all this together with a summary statement and hopefully a small bit of application for you to walk away with. This is summary. Men are morally accountable for their sins in this life And yet the predominant sin that undergirds everything is their unwillingness to conform to God's design for their life. They do not want to submit to God. They don't even like to think about God. Salvation, then, is a miracle of God where He raises the spiritually dead to life. He overcomes their sinful resistance to Him by awakening them to the glories of Christ and joins them to Christ so that He becomes their greatest treasure in life. That means that your conversion was a miracle. That means that had God not awakened you to your condition and awakened you to the glory of the cross, you never would have come. It would have been impossible. 
Now, why does God want us to know these things? Why does God want us to know this? Couldn't we have figured, found that out on the other side? Like, oh, it was really God that was doing the work? And, oh, I thought it was when I believed, and, but it was really God that opened my eyes? Two things. Probably more, but I got two. God wants you to know this for the sake of your worship. In other words, if you realize how hopeless your situation was, how ruined and broken in sin that you were, how devastated your natural condition is to where you would not even pursue God in a million lifetimes, and God broke through all of that and removed your resistance so that you could come to Him and He sets you free, that is to be in us an opportunity, a desire, a motive for worship. Like, God, you really, you really loved me that much that you overcame my sinful resistance to you and made me a child of God? I mean, how could I not worship you? How could I not praise you? Why would you do that for me? So I think one reason that God tells us this is so that we will worship Him. And the second reason, I think, is so that we do not cease praying for others. You have people in your life, you think, he'll never come to Christ. Or she'll never come to Christ. Man, I know this one guy, he's, he's so angry at God, he hates, he'll never come. And maybe God is telling us this so that you realize God does miracles and He takes people who are hardened in their sin like Saul of Tarsus and He makes them into trophies of His grace. And if God did that with the Apostle Paul and God did that with me, maybe He will do that with this person and I'm just going to keep praying and asking God to do a miracle. So you can pray for them with confidence that you are petitioning the God of the impossible. The God who raises the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you raise the dead to new life and that you give us a heart, not a heart of stone, Lord, that was there, but a heart of flesh that we might desire to walk in your ways, that we might pursue you and love You, and treasure You. I pray, Lord, that these ideas would be sought out by Your people, Lord, that this would be the cause of even deeper study, and that the more that we find these things to be true, the more wonderful we discover them to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.